I appreciate those who have led us today, and uh, well done. Uh, good, good songs, uh, good singing. Appreciate the prayer that uh, Rob led us in this morning, and the comments at the table by Brother Kevin. Just uh, well done today. I appreciate it very much, and uh, benefited from being here, and hope that the sermon uh, will be beneficial as well. So let's think about God's Word and think about uh, what He would have us to know. And I hope that I can uh, tell you what he would uh, have me to say and in the way that he would want me to say it. And so that's my prayer uh, from week to week that uh, I say what God wants me to say in the way that he wants me to say it so that it will effectively uh, reach our hearts and uh, affect our lives. I think a lot of people uh, don't understand what the Bible is. I think a lot of people think it's a sort of a collection of old stories that might have good moral lessons, or it's a book that contains some some laws and some do's and some don'ts. Don't do this, do that, and and just a sort of a collection like that. But the Bible tells a story, uh, really from the beginning all the way through to the end. It's not just a collection of stories. It's it's one story uh, that uh, consists of a lot of different episodes and so forth. But it tells the story of God's efforts to save a fallen race, that human beings, men and women, are not what God created them to be. And so he sets forth to bring them back to himself, to save them, to redeem them, to reconcile them uh, to himself. The first several chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through verse uh, chapter 11, Uh, Talk talk about the need for that redemption, the need for that reconciliation. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read about the creation of man and woman. God created them in His own image. He had fellowship with them. He spoke with them. They spoke with Him and so forth. But then in Genesis chapter 3, all of that changes. Uh, Satan tempts the woman and then uh, she yields to the temptation and she influences her husband to uh, yield as well. And in a sense, it all, it all changes. It all kind of comes crashing down. The effects of sin, the consequences of sin then uh, come upon man. The curse of sin comes upon man and woman. And those who descend from that first pair, Adam and Eve, they suffer the consequences of sin as well. And so from Genesis chapter 3 forward, we can read about this steady decline away from God, away from what we were meant to be. And so Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And so the sin situation goes from eating forbidden fruit. Now a a, a man kills his own brother out out of anger. Things are getting worse. And then we read about a man named Lamech. And Lamech has two wives. Remember, God created one wife for the man. Lamech has has two wives, and he too is a murderer. He's a killer. In fact, from his comments, it seems that he's much worse than even Cain was. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we read about all people who live succumbing to death. And why is it they die? They die as a result of Adam's sin. And so Adam sinned and... uh, As a result of that, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. They don't have access to the Tree of Life any longer. And so everyone that's born to them suffer the consequences of that sin. All of them, all of them die. 
Even this challenging account in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men, that uh, only serves to illustrate further the decline into depravity. And then in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved at his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And so things have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse until God finally says, being grieved at his heart, exceedingly sorry that things have, uh, have sort of uh, become what they are, he decides, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to blot them out. We're going to talk about God's judgment on the world on this occasion as a result of man's evil and, and their sin and their turning away from God and God's rescue of a particular individual on this account named Noah. And so we're going to talk about Noah building the ark today. As we said a moment ago, things are so bad that God regrets having made man and decides to destroy him with a flood. We see that in verse 7, but let's read a few more verses along those lines. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Remember earlier that we, we found that, that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's verse 8. And so God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world, everything in it, all the living things in it, all the animals and, and man with a, with a flood. Look at verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Everything's going to perish. Everything's going to be swallowed up and destroyed by this flood. But he makes a way for Noah and the animals to be saved from the flood. We saw that in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. He was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Noah is a good man, a righteous man, a godly man. He lives in an evil, wicked generation, but he's trying to do right. He's trying to follow God. And so God makes provision for Noah to be spared. Look at verse 14. God tells Noah, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, cover it inside and out with pitch. Tells him the dimensions by which to make it and so forth. And so, go make for yourself an ark. And Noah does. Verse 22, Thus did Noah according to all that God had commanded him. And so, God makes a provision for Noah to escape the flood, to be saved from the flood to be rescued from it, build an ark, build it out of this material, build it according to these dimensions, build it according to this design, and Noah does. He, he does that. In chapter 7, verse 13, we read this, 
On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, and all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. So Noah goes into the ark on the day when it begins to rain. Noah goes into the ark, his wife goes with him. His three sons and their wives go with him, and all the animals, as God had instructed him, all the animals go into the ark as well. And then the world is destroyed. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and forty nights. And then verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days. The water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it arose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated over the surface of the water. We'll skip on down to verse 23. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left together who were with those who were with him in the ark. And so Noah and his family were saved, and the animals with him in the ark, but every other living thing in, 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 in which, I guess is the right way to say it, was the breath of life. We go over to chapter 8 and pick up in verse 13. We see Noah and his family coming out of the ark. Now it came about on the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry, and God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. In verse 18, Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. And so there's just some selected passages that tell the story. The world is so corrupt, it's the word that's repeatedly used there, so evil, so corrupt, that it grieves God at His heart. I'm sorry that I even began this. And so he decides, I'm going to blot every living thing that breathes. I'm going to blot it out of existence by a flood. Noah is a righteous man. And so God says to Noah, I'll provide for you a way to escape all of this. Build an ark and go into it. Take your family into it. Take the animals into it and you'll be spared. And so Noah does that and he is spared. Well, that's a story that we learn as children. Even those who are not Bible students, people that are not especially religious, they know something about Noah and the flood. Most people have at least heard of that idea, know something about it. But there are important lessons to be learned from this episode. We want to note just a few. We'll start with the obvious. We see God's judgment against sin. God's judgment is executed against the world because of the evil that's in it. God's judgment isn't arbitrary. 
Uh, God's judgment isn't uh, because man disturbed him, maybe woke him up from his nap one day. You know, that's, that's not what happened. The earth is corrupt. It's ungodly. It's rejected God. It's rebelled against God. It's everything that God doesn't want it to be. And so God said, okay, I've had it up to here. I'm sorry that I even began this. And He executes His judgment against it. And so you can see that in the very first passage that we read in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. It grieved Him in His heart. And the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. And so you see the connection. Man has become evil and corrupt. And for that reason, God decides to destroy His creation. God has a moral standard that He expects all people to conduct themselves by. This is what I expect of you. This is the moral standard. This is right and wrong, and I expect you to live up to it. If you don't live up to that, there's going to be some consequences. And so again, God's judgment against Mankind is not arbitrary, it's not just haphazard. It's a, a moral outrage against the sin and corruption that's in, in the world. Now we see this in other biblical events as well. Go to Genesis chapter 18 and 19. In Genesis 18 verse 20, God says to Abraham, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. Chapter 19 and verse 13. We're about to destroy this place because their outcries become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So their sin is exceedingly grave. It's like the sin is crying out to God. And, and God said, their, their outcry is so great that I, I've got to do something about that. And so... He destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Another, another story that's well known to us, even to those who are not necessarily uh, diligent Bible students. The prophets, you go to uh, the uh, book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of those major prophets have long sections within them in which God denounces the ungodly nations and tells them that He's going to send His judgment against them. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12. It will be when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. And so the king of Assyria has become proud and haughty, and so God is going to bring him low. He's going to execute His judgment against uh, the Assyrians and against their king. In chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, a very similar statement is made about Egypt. And then in chapter 15, or 13, in verse 20, a similar statement about Babylon. And other nations are addressed as well. Because they haven't lived up to God's standard of righteousness and justice. Those are the two things that we read about so often. Although we might include holiness, for example, in, in that as well. But because they haven't lived up to God's standard of righteousness and justice... God is going to bring His judgment down upon them. Amos includes oracles against Damascus and Gaza and Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, Israel, all because of their evil. 
In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus cites the story of Noah and the flood as he looks forward to the judgment uh, at, at the end of the world, this, the final judgment that's coming. He begins in verse 36 by saying, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. People are just going about their lives, thinking everything is just going to continue on just like it always has. They didn't know. They didn't anticipate. And so they didn't prepare for the coming judgment of God. And so it will be in the end of the world. A day of judgment is coming, Peter tells us. From our perspective, a day, is, a day of judgment is coming in which God is going to execute that judgment against the world. Now it's going, to, it's, it's going to be in some ways like the flood of Noah, God's judgment being executed on the world. But in other ways it's going to be unlike God's judgment in the flood. This, this judgment is not going to be one of water in which the world is, is flooded, but one of fire. Verse 7 of 2 Peter 3, But by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So what the story of the flood teaches us is that God will come in judgment against His creation. And so God has created the world. He's created human beings. Is He, does He have such feelings that prevent him from judging them? No, no. In fact, their evil and corruption arouses his wrath, and he comes against them in judgment. Genesis 18, verse 25, God is called the judge of all the earth. He's the judge of all the earth. He holds people accountable for their behavior. And that's just, isn't it? We, we believe that's just. When people do wrong, they must be held accountable for their wrong behavior. And that's exactly what we see on a mass scale in the story of the flood. We see God's judgment against sin and His grace. We see that as well. You see, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That, that word favor, that's the Old Testament word for grace. The 84th Psalm, verse 11 says, The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And you see that in the story of, of, of Noah. God gives grace. He gives favor. God looks upon Noah with favor and grace. And He gives Noah, who walks uprightly, an opportunity to, to be rescued from the flood. God's favor was related to Noah's character, wasn't it? And so verse 9 tells us that Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man, blameless in his time, uh, and, uh, and walked with God. And so God's favor toward Noah was connected to, to Noah's godly character. Now we talked about uh, the destruction of Sodom a moment ago. Look at uh, Genesis 18 verse 25. Abraham is saying, far be it from you to do such a thing. Just completely wipe out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows Lot, his nephew, and Lot's family live there. And so, you know, please don't just wipe everybody out. 
to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Is, is it right to send the same judgment on the righteous and the wicked? And so God's favor, God's blessing, God's grace, in these cases is connected with the character of, of people. God's grace is often seen in the midst of judgment. And so here's a bleak picture in these early chapters in Genesis, very bleak uh, picture of the condition of the world and God's judgment look, looks pretty bleak. And yet in the midst of all of that, there's this, way, this ray of God's grace where He preserves and spares Noah and his family. But that's the way things are often in the Bible. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly while He at the same time is reserving the ungodly for judgment. And so that's what you see here. You see Noah being preserved by God's grace in the midst of all this sin and all this corruption and all this judgment. Now we want to emphasize both of these characteristics of God. God is not merely a God of wrath and judgment. He is that. But He's also willing to extend His grace and mercy and love to people who will turn toward Him. And of course, the greatest example of this is seen in Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're at odds with God because of our sin, but through Christ now we've been reconciled and we have peace with God. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so we see God's judgment and God's wrath, but in Christ... We find God's grace and hope of salvation. And so we see, you know, we see, of course, that's, a, that's the greatest example of it. So in, but in, in the story of Noah, we see God's judgment against sin and His grace. Remember, God's favor and God's grace is linked to the character of men like Noah. There's another lesson to be learned from all of this. Our, our actions... Our actions affect what God does. Our actions affect what God does. Go back to Genesis chapter 6 again, verses 5 and 6. You see, it's when God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, 
that God decided to destroy the earth. And so the actions of human beings, in this case the corrupt and evil actions, motivated God, affected God so that He decided to destroy the world. Now that wasn't God's intent in the beginning. In the beginning of creation, God intended to have fellowship with man. He made man in His own image so that that fellowship might be possible. But when man turned away from God, turned toward evil, rejected God, refused to have God, well then God became sorry that He had made man. Now a few observations. God's involved with the people that He's created. God is a detached, removed God from His, removed from His creation. He's very much involved with us in, in many ways especially with man and woman. So God, God didn't create the world and then step back and say, well, let's see how things go. No, God's involved with the world. In many ways, He's especially involved with men and women. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4 and verse, thir- uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that we are naked and laid open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And so that expression, with whom we have to do, we we have business with God, as it were. He has business with us. He relates to us. We relate to Him. He's interested in us, and we are uh, interested in Him as well. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's at the city of Athens, of course, and he has the opportunity to preach. And he makes this statement in verse 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. See, God is involved in the world among the nations. He's appointed their times and boundaries of their habitation. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so we live in Him. He's created us, but we move in Him as well. We have our being in in Him. And so He's involved in our lives. We are involved with Him as well. The actions of human beings either please God or grieve Him. Here in the case of Noah, uh, the actions of human beings grieved Him. But there are other passages that suggest that we can please Him. And so... Our actions affect God. If we're evil, it grieves Him, and He'll bring His judgment upon us. But if we do His will, we can please Him, and He'll reward us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's interesting. God is pleased. God is interested in what we do. He is affected by what we do. And we may grieve Him, or we may please Him. You know, some say that God doesn't have emotions. Uh, it's, he's impassable is uh, the technical word for that. That He's unmoved, has no feeling about, well, anything really. That seems contrary to what the Scriptures say, doesn't it? God is grieved at our sin. He's pleased with our obedience. And so God does have emotion. He does have feelings about what we do. Our actions affect God. Which makes sense only if man has the free will to choose evil and good. Do you think about that? Now if God is grieved because of the evil of 
humanity during the days of corruption, that would suggest that they had the free will to choose evil. You see, if God decreed or predetermined that man would become evil, why would God be grieved when man became evil? <laughs> you see, if God decreed men will become evil by Genesis chapter 6, why would He be grieved when they did that? If God decreed that man would become evil, why would He bring judgment on men who are doing only what God decreed them to do? So if God had predetermined all these people will become evil, why would God come in judgment against people that He decided would be evil? Would that, would that be fair? Would that be just to condemn people and judge people for being what the judge programmed them to be in the beginning? And then, would a holy God be responsible for creating or determining that people would become unholy. You see, if God predetermined that in Genesis chapter 6 the whole world would be corrupt, if that's how He made those, how can a holy God make unholy beings fit for destruction? And so you see, all of this suggests that people have the free will to choose against God. And it's because people have free will now, God wants them to choose Him, but in their free will, they reject Him, and so it grieves Him. In their free will, they reject Him, and so He's just in bringing judgment against them. And He's not responsible for their corruption, because they've chosen it of their own free will. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses set before the people life and death. He encouraged them to choose life. That's, those are the words that are used. Choose life. We need to choose life so that we can receive God's blessing as opposed to God's judgment. We've got one more point to make. We'll try to do it quickly. It's important for us to follow God's instructions. Noah's life was preserved or his life was saved by a combination of God's grace, Noah's faith, and obedience. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there, there's a comment about Noah. It says, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He did this by faith. God told Noah, I'm going to bring a flood on the earth and it's going to be unlike anything anybody's ever seen. Well, Noah believed that. There's this faith. And then he obeyed. He prepared an ark. And so, he's saved by God's grace, combined with Noah's faith and obedience. God emphasizes obedience to us in a number of passages. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, To obey is better than sacrifice. Now let's raise these questions. What if Noah had not built an ark? Well, what if he just said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's a lot of work. It's going to take me a long time. I've only got a few people that will help me. I, I, I'm not going to do that. What, what would have happened? It didn't take a genius to figure out what would have happened. Of course, he would not have been saved. Now, remember, God tells Noah, I want you to build this ark out of gopher wood. Now, I don't know that anybody knows exactly what gopher wood was, but a certain type of wood to be distinguished from non-gopher wood. <laughs> Maybe that's about the most we could say. But make it out of gopher wood. 
Uh, make uh, the ark with rooms, covered inside and out with pitch. Make it a certain length and breadth and height. Uh, make a window for the ark and so forth. Make three decks in the ark. Well, what, if, what if Noah had said, well, you know, I've got, I've got a good bit of gopher wood, but you know, I've got some of this other kind of wood over here. And I've, I've got some experience with that. That works pretty well. And so I'm going to use that and the gopher wood. Well, again, it doesn't take a lot of insight to figure out what would have happened on that if that had been the case. If Noah had said, well, three stories are good, four are even better. I'm going to make it with four stories. Or I'm going to make it larger or smaller than God's instructions called for. Noah was saved from the flood because of God's grace, his faith, and obedience to God's instruction. And so in verse 22, chapter 6, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. It's important that we follow the instructions. Isn't it? That, that's, that's important. Now here are a couple of illustrations. You know, God instructs us to be baptized. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so God commands or instructs penitent believers to be in, immersed in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. The word baptism means to immerse or to submerge or to plunge. But what if we decide we're going to, be, we're going to baptize a different way, a, a different method of baptism? Uh, how's, well, that's, that's very similar to if Noah had decided to build the ark out of a different kind of wood, isn't it? And so what if we decide to baptize a different way? Or if we baptize unbelievers or the, those that don't repent. So little children are not believers. You know, babies haven't come to a stage in their intellectual development where they're capable of putting their trust in someone. They haven't committed sin to repent of, not capable of repentance. And yet, you know, what, what if we decide, well, we're going to baptize these instead of, or in addition to, penitent believers. Or if someone were to say, well, I don't get the connection between baptism and being right with God and pleasing to God. I, I'm just not going to do that at all. Isn't it important to follow God's instructions? Of course it is. We learned that from the story of Noah. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. We sort of remind ourselves of that just about every week as we read from Matthew chapter 26 or like we did this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so Jesus takes bread and breaks it. He blesses it. And He distributes it among the apostles. And, and, and He tells them to eat. This is His body. And takes the cup. And He tells His disciples to, to drink. This is His blood. And so as many as eat the bread and drink the cup, proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so Paul concurs with that. The Lord's Supper consists of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Is it important that we adhere to that? That we use unleavened bread and fruit of the vine? Is it important that we follow those instructions? Are we at liberty to use different elements or add elements? Water, for example, instead of fruit of the vine. Or fruit of the vine and, 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 and unleavened bread and maybe some bitter herbs. Maybe add something like that. Or maybe a roast piece of lamb. <laughs> Well, no, is it important that we follow the instructions? Well, well, yes, it is. 
We learn that from the story of Noah. We, we see that if, if Noah had deviated from the instructions, what, what would have happened? Well, again, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. The New Testament instructs Christians to worship God by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so we see that Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The New Testament doesn't instruct Christians to worship God with instruments of music. And so the New Testament doesn't instruct the church to worship God with instruments of music. Now, if we can see why it was important to Noah, for Noah to use gopher wood and only gopher wood, well, then we can see why it's important for us to sing and only sing in worship. God's Word specified each, right? God's Word specified, I want you to build the ark of gopher wood. And in God's Word, in the New Testament, we see the church instructed to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so in each case, the principle is the same. Do what God has specified, and only what God has specified in that area. The action specified should be done without addition, subtraction, or alteration. It's important, isn't it, that we follow the instruction. That's important. And we follow them as they're given by the Lord. Our time's out. I appreciate everybody's patience today and everybody's uh, thinking along with me. The, again, the, the story of Noah is a story that we learn when we're little children. You know, learn about Noah and the flood and him taking the animals into the ark two by two and, and all of those things. And, but there's some really important lessons that we learn even in our adulthood from the story of Noah and the flood. We hope that we've drawn out these lessons, at least some of them, and they've helped us in some way today. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. Our Father, we pray that our singing has glorified you today. We pray that our praying has pleased you, that our, uh, our observation of the Lord's Supper has been done in a way that brings glory and honor to you and, and to your Son. Father, we pray that the lesson that we've thought about today from the story of your interaction with Noah, the flood upon the earth, that, that we've learned from that, that we've learned valuable lessons from that, that we can take with us and we can, we can live our life in light of those things. Father, we know that our sin grieves you and that you will come in judgment against it. But we also know, Father, that You've made out of your grace or in your grace, you've made it possible for us to be saved from that judgment through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that, Father, and we pray that each one here will take advantage of that opportunity to come to you through Christ, to live a life of faithfulness from this point forward. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're here